Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Fruitland, Idaho. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Five-year-old Michael Vaughn was this happy, energetic little boy who loved trucks, dirt, doing living room parkour, hanging out with his mom and dad, Brandy and Tyler, his grandpa who lived with them, and of course, his three siblings. He had two older siblings he looked up to and a baby sister that he loved to take care of. The house the Vaughns lived in was a cute little three-bedroom rancher in a small neighborhood in Fruitland. It was a quiet neighborhood where all the neighbors were friendly and the kids would play outside together even if there was an age gap. It was the kind of neighborhood where you would wave at your neighbors when you pass by and strike up conversations when you're out on walks. And everyone seemed to look out for each other's kids while they were playing outside. For all intents and purposes, it seemed like the perfect place to raise a family. But all of that changed on Tuesday, July 27th, 2021. At around 7.30 p.m. that evening, police got a report of a missing child. A code red alert was pushed out to local residents to be on the lookout for five-year-old Michael Vaughn, who had last been seen around 6.30 p.m. in the area of Southwest 9th Street and Arizona Avenue, pretty much the corner of the street by his house. But that was really the only detail released about the circumstances surrounding his disappearance. Usually you hear something like, he was playing in the front yard and I turned around for a second and he disappeared. But when it came to Michael's disappearance, that information wasn't released. All we knew was that he was wearing a light blue Minecraft shirt with six rows of Minecraft characters on it, dark blue boxer briefs with green trim, and size 11 blue flip-flops. He was Caucasian, with blonde hair and blue eyes, was 3 feet and 7 inches tall, and weighed about 50 pounds. Fruitland police believed Michael was in danger and asked that if anyone saw him to please call 911 because this was an emergency. They noted that he responds to the nickname Monkey, though he was known to his family and friends as MJ. As soon as police got the call that Michael was missing, they didn't waste a single second trying to pull out all the stops to find him. Fire, EMS, search and rescue teams, canines, and a helicopter with infrared technology were all called in. Michael's house backed up to a pretty big field, so there was a lot of ground to cover, but it also seemed realistic that they would find him pretty quickly. It had only been about 30 minutes, and it was still light outside. Everyone in the neighborhood was out helping to look for him, and every resource available to the police department was being used. 
Unfortunately, the daylight turned into darkness and Michael was nowhere to be found. By the following morning, police asked the public to step back on the volunteer searches while people with specialized training took over. What they could do, though, was check their own properties and any security footage they might have. If they caught Michael walking past any security cameras, they might be able to narrow down their search area. The Argus Observer reports that the search and rescue teams were going through the cornfields one row at a time, one inch at a time. There were also people searching through irrigation canals and ditches, and people wondered if they had planned on searching the river as well. And they probably were, but they hadn't yet due to what they said was a low probability that he would be there. And he really would have had to walk quite a ways to get to the river, the Snake River. It wasn't an area where he could easily wander off to and then stumble and fall. He would have had to have walked about a half a mile away without being noticed, and that just seemed unlikely here. The searches continued all day Wednesday and into Thursday. At that point, the National Guard was called in and a military helicopter flew above while reservists on foot searched the ground. Those irrigation canals that were searched earlier were drained so they could be checked more thoroughly, but nothing was found. Later that afternoon, Fruitland County Police posted an update to Facebook. They were asking that anyone who is in the area of Southwest 8th Street and Southwest 9th Street and Cornwall Way on July 27th between 6.30 and 7.15 p.m. to please contact them. Cornwall Way was north of the area they had searched the previous two days and into the heart of the neighborhood as opposed to the fields to the south of his house, which seemed to be the focal point of the initial searches. No one knew why there was a change in direction, but the update did narrow down the time frame of when they believe he went missing. Whatever happened, happened between 6.30 and 7.15 p.m., which was only a 45-minute gap. Where could this five-year-old have gone in 45 minutes? Law enforcement wanted to talk to anyone who had been in the area who might have seen Michael or something that seemed out of place. On Friday, July 30th, 2021, CBS2 reported that police were stopping every vehicle coming and going from the neighborhood, meticulously taking note of every single license plate. There was only one way in and one way out, so the only reason you'd be in that neighborhood is if you lived there or you were visiting someone who did. Getting down the license plates of everyone coming and going would give law enforcement a way to look into each driver, ask them why they were in the neighborhood, and whether or not they were in the neighborhood at the time of Michael's disappearance. Knowing who they were would also give them some insight into who they might be associated with, and no detail was too small at that point. While that was going on, the outlaw reports that Michael's babysitter, a family friend who would watch the kids sometimes when Brandy and Tyler were at work, organized a prayer circle. She told CBS2, His mommy needs him, his daddy needs him, his papa needs him. We just need him to come home. On Saturday, July 31st, police held their first on-camera press conference. They said that Michael's parents had been 100% cooperative. They, too, spoke on camera for the first time and tearfully thanked everyone who had helped search for their son, adding, We just want our monkey home, we miss our baby, and we just want him home. 
Law enforcement updated that the river was searched and 10 canine teams had found nothing. They said that everything is on the table, which sounds like they're considering all possibilities as to how Michael might have disappeared. And the fact that 10 canine teams hadn't been able to track his scent to a point where they could get any leads makes me think that they either couldn't track his scent at all or that they lost it pretty quickly in the neighborhood. Not knowing yet whether he disappeared from inside the house or while he was outside, this information left a lot of questions on the table. On August 4th, police held another press conference to update on the investigation into Michael's disappearance. They had searched over 29 miles of riverbank, searched various ponds in the area with divers, had combed over 3,000 acres of farmland, drained a septic tank that was only covered by a makeshift wood cover, and had been through 200 houses and 200 trash cans. They'd also recovered 60 different videos from area cameras, be it home security or business cameras. Though they had searched nonstop since the day he went missing and utilized every resource possibly available to not only them, but several other agencies also donating their time and equipment, they were no closer to finding Michael than they were the day he disappeared. The city of Fruitland actually added an entire tab to their website called Find Michael Vaughn, which included all of his information, a downloadable poster, and every phone number, email, and app you could possibly use to report any tips about where he might be. On August 11th, the police department released another update on Facebook. They said that the intensive searching continued to be very active in the subdivision Michael went missing from, adding, there may be someone who knows something who has been unsure, perhaps even afraid to reach out. We want to listen. All of the attention still on the neighborhood felt like maybe he hadn't wandered off. They had searched it so thoroughly already, maybe they were looking into someone who lived in there. Maybe they didn't think Michael had gone far at all, and maybe this wasn't a case of a child who'd simply gotten lost. Was it possible that he had been abducted by someone in his own neighborhood and he was still there? Six days after that update, the Argus Observer reported that investigators were back in the subdivision knocking on doors and asking more questions. Whatever evidence they had clearly kept directing them back into that neighborhood. A full month passed following Michael's disappearance, and at that point, Fruitland's police chief talked to Argus News about how personal this investigation had become, not only to him, but to every single one of the investigators working on this case. The chief told the station, Every one of us are heartsick. When we go home at night, this is what we think about. Our primary goal is to locate Michael and bring him home, and we're not going to stop until we get that done. Michael is one of ours, and we view him as one of our little boys, so it does hit home. It's tough from a law enforcement standpoint. We feel a lot of pressure. Citizens want a resolution, we feel, and that's a heavy burden to bear. He added that Fruitland was an amazing community and had stepped up and supported them throughout the investigation, and that their only priority was to find Michael. There were people who felt like this statement showed weakness in the police department, but frankly, I think it kind of humanized the job, and it's nice to hear that they care enough for it to affect them. I think I'd be more concerned if Michael's month-long disappearance at this point was something they could just shut off and not think about once the workday was over. On September 3rd, a $10,000 reward was donated by an anonymous source. The Argus Observer reported that when the donor handed the check to the chief, he said, if that little boy is found and brought home safely, 
that will have been the best money I've ever spent. Everyone hoped that $10,000 might be enough motivation for anyone with information to finally share it with the police. At that point, the searches had slowed down a bit and had become more focused on specific areas. If you guessed that some of those specific areas were the subdivision Michael lived in, you would be correct. Law enforcement sent a specialized team of canines back over the initial search area in the neighborhood. More than two months passed with no sign of Michael, but on October 8th, police released the first major update since he went missing, and it was something the public could help with. Law enforcement needed help identifying four different people, the driver of two vehicles and the identities of two men seen walking in the neighborhood. The first was a driver of a white Honda Pilot that had been seen driving down Southwest 8th Street on the day Michael went missing at 6.47 p.m. They guesstimated that the model of the Honda Pilot was between a 2016 and 2020 version, and the time it was captured on video put it in the area during that 45-minute window when Michael vanished. The second vehicle in question was the driver of a blue 2010 to 2011 Dodge Avenger. The Avenger was also seen leaving the area within that 45-minute time frame at 6.56 p.m. The two people they wanted to identify were both adult males. The first one with dark hair and dark facial hair wearing a white t-shirt with something on the back of it, black shorts, and dark-colored shoes. KIVI reported that he walked past the park at the front of the neighborhood and towards the drainage behind it. The second was a jogger wearing dark-colored shorts and no t-shirt. He was seen jogging on the sidewalk near the park at 6.15 p.m. That was 15 minutes before that 45-minute time frame, but the police made a point to say that none of these people were suspects or persons of interest, that they just wanted to speak to them to help piece together the missing pieces of that night. From what I can tell, every other person who came and went into that neighborhood had been identified, and these were the last four they needed help with. By October 27th, the public had helped identify the owner of the Dodge Avenger and the jogger, but they still didn't know who was driving the white Honda Pilot or the man in the white t-shirt walking by the park and behind the neighborhood. As promising as it felt to finally have some information to work with, time continued to tick by with no sign of Michael. At a press conference on November 18th, his mom spoke saying, Please keep Michael's face, his name, in every one of your hearts, your eyes, and your minds. It has been 115 days. 115 days he has not been home. We need every one of you. I need you. I need your help to bring my baby home. I need you to know how much Michael is loved. I need you to know how much he is missed. Our family is broken without him. Police updated that they had searched nearly 1,000 acres around the area of his home as recently as last week, addressing the fact that they continued to search areas that had already been searched because as conditions changed in the area, they wanted to make sure that nothing was missed. But it kind of felt bigger than that. It felt like they knew something that the public didn't, and that was unsettling. If someone in the neighborhood was responsible, then was anyone really safe? A local posted that there are usually kids playing outside and people in their yards at all times during the day, but ever since Michael disappeared, there's hardly anyone outside and everyone's doors are locked. According to KTVB, the department stated that most of the homes on Southwest 9th Street had been searched, but that sounded a lot like not all of them had been searched. Was there someone on the street not allowing police to search their house? 
On November 23rd, Brandy did a live interview with Zav Girl on YouTube, and it cleared up a lot of the missing information surrounding the time of Michael's disappearance. She told Zav Girl that she was on her eighth day of working in a row, and Michael just wanted to spend time with his mom. She promised him that she was going to have a couple of days off after this last day of work and then headed out. He spent most of the day at home with his dad, Tyler, and his three other siblings. The two oldest played on their electronics for most of the day, while Michael and his sister played outside. They called Brandy on her lunch break at around 4 p.m., and everything seemed normal. After that phone call, Tyler put the baby down for a nap. The day went on as normal, and at around 6.30 p.m., when Michael was in the living room playing on his Nintendo Switch, Tyler went back into the baby's room to wake her up from her nap, change her, and order a pizza. When he came out, Michael wasn't in the living room anymore. I don't think anyone knows exactly how much time passed between when he noticed Michael was gone and when he called Brandy, but I think it's safe to say that he did look around for Michael for a bit. And it's not totally uncommon for five-year-olds to change their mind and decide to go play in a room or grab a snack from the kitchen, so him not being in the living room on his switch wouldn't be super alarming at first. What was alarming was that no matter where he looked, he couldn't find Michael anywhere. No matter how loud he called his name, Michael didn't answer back. Just after 7 p.m., Tyler called Brandy at work in a full panic. She suggested that he look under the bed by the back wall, but when Michael wasn't there and Tyler told her that he couldn't find him anywhere, she grabbed her purse and drove home as fast as she could. She told Zab Girl on YouTube that she could hear the fear in Tyler's voice. The drive home felt like it was in slow motion, but when she turned into the neighborhood, there were already police out looking for him. Frankly, anyone within shouting distance had taken notice of what was going on and joined in the search. I want to go back a little bit and talk about what happened between the time Tyler went to change the baby and when he came back and noticed that Michael wasn't in the living room anymore. According to an interview Brandy did with the Idaho Press, Michael had actually walked out of the house and knocked on several neighbors' doors to see if any of their children could play. This wasn't something that Michael was allowed to do on his own, so they can't really explain why he did it on that day but he went to at least three houses to see if he could play with the kids there, but none of them could. The neighbors at the third house he went to, all in his own short street, were the last people to see him. Brandy told the Idaho Press that canines had tracked his scent to the end of their street away from the fields, but the scent abruptly ended. Judging by this interview and one Brandy did with Moms for Missing, it looks like he was last seen about four houses down and across the street and his scent was lost two houses before the end of the street, which would mean that he didn't get very far at all after leaving that last house. With that, the police department finally stated that there's an increased possibility that Michael was abducted. Safe at Last reports that less than 1% of child abductions are perpetrated by strangers, and the idea that Michael might be a part of that 1% was absolutely terrifying. Looking at a map of the neighborhood versus where he was last seen and his scent trail ended, if he got into a vehicle, they likely had to do a U-turn to get out of the neighborhood or circle around driving right past his house. The impact that Michael's disappearance had on his entire family 
is something that I don't think anyone can completely wrap their mind around if they haven't lived through it. And obviously, I haven't lived through it, and most of us haven't. Brandy told the Idaho Press that his oldest sister didn't even want a birthday that year because her brother was still missing. Even though she didn't want one, the Fruitland Police Department had become a part of the Vaughn family, and they all made sure to send her a happy birthday text. When it came time for Michael's baby sister's second birthday party, the investigators on Michael's case all showed up and brought birthday gifts, and they even came by to rake leaves at the house so she would have some piles to jump in. This was an unimaginable situation, and in the beginning, I don't think anyone felt like there was even a remote possibility that he wouldn't be found really quickly, either lost in the field or somewhere else in the neighborhood. But December marked five months without Michael and all bets were off. Initially, his parents had stayed out of the media, but at this point, there was nothing left to lose, and the media coverage of his case, which was never really that heavy, was dwindling fast. Brandy did an interview with Moms for Missing where she filled in more gaps as to what the investigation entailed up to that point. The FBI joined in at some point and they did do a tower dump, which basically means that records are pulled from the cell phone towers covering a specific area, which list every single phone number that pinged off of that tower during a specific period of time. With that information, police are able to go down the list and figure out who was in the area and check into why. If anyone stood out as odd, They can then use that information to see where the person lives, who they're associated with, and any other locations they might have access to that might be pertinent to the case. It's a really helpful investigative tactic. Brandy also narrowed down the timeline of when Michael disappeared by telling Moms for Missing that the last neighbor to see him that evening saw him at 6.45 p.m., meaning the time frame of his disappearance was now a 30-minute window between 6.45 p.m. and 7.15 p.m. On December 29th, the investigation took a new direction when East Idaho News reported that law enforcement had expanded their search to a remote wooded area just north of Weiser County. As the crow flies, it's about 18 miles north of all their previous search locations, and police weren't telling the media why. It felt too specific to have not come from a credible lead, but as far as I can tell, nothing ever came from that search. January 27, 2022 marked six months since Michael disappeared. The police department had followed more than 830 leads, but it didn't feel like they were any closer to finding him, though it was definitely not for lack of effort. This is probably one of the most thorough searches I have ever seen from a law enforcement standpoint, even bringing in the military, and it's probably one of the longest searches that I've seen as well. This department was going to do anything they could for as long as they needed to until they found Michael. And the community surrounding them was just as supportive. Several different fundraisers had been done for Michael's family, and every single penny that had been donated to them, they gave right to the police chief to put towards the reward fund. The reward was now up to $52,860, and people were donating the last bit of money that they could afford whether it was $10,000, $100, or even $10. More months passed, and in March of 2022, Idaho actually passed a bill in response to there being no Amber Alert issued for Michael at the time he went missing. Yes, the red alert did go out, but that was an opt-in that not everyone knew that they could actually opt into. With the new bill, an emergency alert would be sent out to Idaho and surrounding states whenever there was an endangered missing person. According to the Idaho State Journal, 
It was passed into law in April. Even though Michael hadn't been found yet, he was absolutely changing the course of countless missing persons investigations in the future. I'd love to tell you that new leads came rolling in, but this case seemed to stall until just last month. On Saturday, November 12th of 2022, Fruitland Police Department was seen taking down the fence in a yard just a mile away from Michael's house, in his neighborhood. The fence was taken down so they could drive a tractor into the backyard. According to KTVB, police had gotten a tip from someone in the house, and whatever that tip was, it was credible enough for them to get a judge to sign off on an excavation warrant. According to the outlet, this was the 27th search warrant issued in the investigation, which didn't even begin to include the amount of consensual searches, which the chief said was triple that amount. This excavation was huge news and local stations started live tweeting updates from the scene. The chief told KTVB that the couple who lived in the home didn't own it and that he doesn't know of any connection between them and Michael. He also said that they narrowed down the timeline in which Michael disappeared to a 20-minute window between 6.40 and 7 p.m. The station interviewed a neighbor who said the police had asked him if they'd seen a child's scooter and even showed the neighbor a picture. Was there a scooter missing along with Michael? Was that a detail that they had kept close to the vest? After a full day of searching Friday, they resumed on Sunday morning and the fire chief told reporter Alexandra Dugan that they'd already peeled up the first few layers of dirt in the yard. Before long, there was a lot of attention surrounding one of the canines on the fence line. The dog seemed pretty excited and there was a group of law enforcement officials surrounding him. Everything went quiet for a couple of hours and everyone seemed to leave the scene, but when they got back, the reporter noted that they were carrying a tool set and a shovel. One official told reporter Abby Davis that they planned to excavate the entire backyard going three to four feet into the soil, and they weren't exaggerating even a little bit. By late afternoon, what looked like a dump truck drove away from the scene with the excavated dirt in the back. Law enforcement was going to sift through every single square inch of that dirt for any evidence that Michael or his remains had ever touched it. The search in the backyard had everyone's blood pressure on high. It was a search where you could watch everything unfolding in real time, but there weren't really any updates given. That is, until Monday, November 14th. That morning, News Nation reported that one day prior to the excavation even starting, the woman who lived in the house had been taken into custody, 35-year-old Sarah Wandra. Her husband, Stacy Wandra, was already in custody for an unrelated charge. Of course, the first thing I did when I found out who'd been taken into custody was run a background and sprint to social media to see what I can find, and holy mother of Krakens, was it a wild ride. Sarah had multiple accounts across Facebook and multiple accounts across TikTok, so it was a lot to ingest. And not just because of the sheer volume, but because of the off-the-wall things that she ranted about multiple times a day. The underlying message behind most of her posts had something to do with her religion. In a pro-life rant, she posted, Tell me this baby is only a fetus. You are wrong. This is a living, breathing child, so don't think you can call it anything else. You are calling it that to cover up your murder of children. Yes, I said murder. Abortion is just that, so justify your murders how you wish, but God is in control, and if you have done this, 
I suggest repenting and turning to Jesus because otherwise you will see the wrath and not grace because Jesus is the only way to heaven. I'm going to let that sink in before we talk about how that post was not aging well based on the comments it was collecting below. Based on other posts, it seemed like she may have found Jesus while she was in prison. Granted, I can't find any prior convictions that would have landed her there, but that is what she said. In other posts, she talked about how Christmas is Satan worship and even made a TikTok video about how opening Panda Express fortune cookies was consulting demons. Though she did make a point to say that she didn't think Panda was sacrificing all their foods to demons. In one of those TikToks, you can see Michael's missing poster plastered on the front of her refrigerator. While everyone who'd been following Michael's case was busy trying to figure out who this Sarah girl was, they got another update. Later that same day, she was officially charged with failure to notify of a death. According to KTVB, police believe that Sarah might have knowledge of Michael's death and failed to report it. Michael's family had held on to so much hope that they might find him and bring him home alive and knowing that they were having to hear police confirm that someone might have knowledge about his death is enough to want to break down for them. Sarah's arraignment was at 1.30 that afternoon, and at the hearing, we all learned that her specific charge was for someone accused of not reporting a death with the intent to prevent discovery of the manner of death. According to KTVB, investigators believe that on or around November 12th, she failed to notify law enforcement about the death of Michael Vaughn. This made a lot of people wonder if Michael had been alive the entire time. However, it looks more like that's the day that police believe she was dishonest with them in regards to his potential death. That coincides with the fact that she was taken into custody on Friday the 11th, one day before. According to East Idaho News, police had actually forced entry into her house that day which was probably one hell of a shocker for her who was just chilling in her living room. They read the warrant to her because, you know, they just busted into her house. And when they mentioned something about murder, she told them that she'd never murdered anyone, that she definitely did not kill that boy. But she did offer a revelation saying, oh, wow, wow, the most high God just told me that Stacy, her husband, was the one who killed him and buried him in the backyard of the neighbor's house. When she was asked to show them where Michael was buried, she mentioned a spot near the entry of the house, but also said that Stacy had buried him in the backyard by the shed. Just to be clear, that's three spots in like 25 seconds. The backyard of the neighbor's house, a spot near the entry of the house, and the backyard by the shed. I think it's easy to understand why they were excavating the entire backyard. When she was in the process of being arrested, Sarah had yet another revelation, stating, God just told me that Stacy was the one who did it, and that she knew Michael was in the neighbor's yard because Stacy had just told her. She then corrected herself and said that it was God who told her. And I don't know about you, but it feels like there's a big difference between the two. East Idaho News reports that even though she told police that God told her Stacy was the one who buried Michael's body in the backyard, she said he's not the one who hurt him, that a man named Adrian had, and that he was scared to tell anyone. Back at the arraignment, East Idaho News reports that the prosecutor asked for a $1 million bond because of a previous firearms charge, which was for a felony in possession of a firearm, which she was apparently on pretrial release for. 
The reporting on that charge got a little hairy, and it was hard to figure out what exactly the circumstances were. The initial report said that she was on pretrial release for it, and that the charge involved Stacy as well, who was already in jail. However, East Idaho News also reported that the charges had been dismissed. I don't know what the full story is behind that, but either way, felony and possession of a firearm was definitely a discussion at the table. Her bond was eventually set to 500000 with a preliminary hearing set for the 21st and the 22nd. The judge wound up sealing the probable cause affidavit because there was concern that information in the affidavit being released might impact the investigation. If investigators felt like other people might know something, they certainly didn't want whoever else might be involved to be one step ahead of them, making it even more difficult to find Michael's remains, which still had yet to be found. Over the next week, police continued searching the backyard and vowed to not stop investigating Michael's abduction until those involved are brought to justice. This seemed to be the first time that they publicly called this an actual abduction, and I want to point out that they said those involved, which kind of sounds plural. When it came time for Sarah's preliminary hearing, it didn't happen. KIVI reports that her competency was evaluated and she was found unfit to assist in her own defense, so she was admitted to Idaho Health and Welfare. I don't think a ton of people were shocked by that. It's just frustrating because everyone wants answers. On December 1st, police held another press conference to state that every canine brought to that backyard had alerted to the presence of human remains. They had used ground-penetrating radar, which detected anomalies in the yard, but unfortunately, they had not found Michael's remains. They believe he was abducted, then buried, and then his remains were removed. When it comes to ground-penetrating radar finding anomalies in the yard, it doesn't necessarily mean that they saw what might have been a body that was buried. It could mean something like the density of the soil in a certain area suggested that it had been manipulated. Speaking of suggestions, according to law enforcement, evidence suggested that both Sarah and already incarcerated Stacy both have first-hand knowledge of the abduction, but those are only two of the four names mentioned in this press conference. The other two were a 30-year-old named Brandon, who they believed was in North Dakota, and a 32-year-old named Adrian, who they believed was in Ohio. Both of them had been staying in Sarah and Stacy's home when Michael was abducted. Police asked for anyone with information to call the police and said that they believe four people are involved in Michael's abduction. In a strange twist, a YouTuber named Jonathan Lee Riches had apparently interviewed this Adrian guy 45 days before he was ever named by police. He told Riches that he was with Sarah all day and that Stacy was home alone. He said that he only heard about Michael's disappearance when Sarah's car was stopped and she was told that Michael was missing. He says that Sarah told him they should go help look for him. The last few updates that have come in Michael's case are from the last couple of weeks. The Argus Observer reports that a consensual search was done of the neighbor's yard, but nothing was found. On top of that, KTVB reports that law enforcement was able to make contact with both Brandon and Adrian. However, nothing more was said about it. 
I haven't found any evidence to suggest that either of them were taken into custody or that there are any charges against them. As of yet, Michael's remains have still not been found, and there is no word about how or when the case against Sarah will move forward. However, law enforcement has stated in no uncertain terms that they will not rest until there is justice for Michael Vaughn. If you have any information, please contact the Fruitland Police Department at 208-452-3110. You can also email tips to findmichael at fruitland.org. You can also submit tips to Crime Stoppers and at 343cops.com. You may remain anonymous. For all photos pertaining to Michael's case, check out his highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, where we go live and talk about today's episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. To get access to ad-free and bonus episodes, which are released on the first Monday of every month, subscribe to our Apple Premium or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmattruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you love the podcast, feel free to leave a review. I read them all and they absolutely make my day. And if you have a case that you'd like to hear covered, share it with Big Mad True Crime on social media. All cases are covered by listener request. I'll be bringing you a brand new case next week and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. Mm-hmm.